Hello and welcome to In Theory, the podcast for the JHI blog. I'm Tom Furs, a primary editor at the JHI blog, and I'm joined today by Professor Samuel Moyne, Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. We're going to cover his latest book, Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, published by Verso Books, and his Carlisle Lectures at Oxford University earlier this year. Thanks for joining me, Sam. It's a privilege to be with you. So to kick off, what first drew you to write a history about the idea of humanitarian warfare? Well, you know, like most books, it has a number of origin points. I uh, went to law school in the 1990s and I was presented by my teachers with the you know, program of humanizing war as one of the most uplifting causes available. And, you know, at the time, there was wasn't a lot of discussion of restraining war, um, only kind of struggling to make it less brutal. Um, And in fact, as I later realized, there was erosion of um, the idea of constraints on war at that time. And so, you know, that was the first moment when I, you know, was provoked by this, I thought, um, unsatisfactory divergence between, you know, the the erosion of, you know, constraints on having war and the strengthening of constraints on how it's fought. And then I lived through Barack Obama's presidency. Uh, and there I thought you had an extraordinary demonstration of the rhetorical and real power of um, seeking legitimation for ongoing wars uh, in 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 their humanization. And, you know, if you look at both of his main speeches about the war on terror, his Nobel Peace Prize uh, acceptance speech in 2009 and his National Defense University speech on the drone war in 2013, both place the humanity of American war at at their center. So I thought it would be interesting to, you know, do a history of how we had ended up with with this set of priorities and what, you know, know, what to investigate whether there had been, you know, debates about ending up there along the way. Yeah, I think in your in your book, you know, you offer a, a history of the moral and legal standards that have developed in humanitarian warfare. You, you mentioned sort of Tolstoy, you have other things in the 20th century um, and then right up to the contemporary moment. And I wondered, can you tell us about the liberal politics behind this, this kind of warfare and what it and it, what it tells us about the contemporary moment as well? Well, you know, we'll get into this on a, from a different angle soon, but, you know, liberalism is, is a complex, possibly indeterminate concept. And so it's very hard to generalize about liberals transhistorically. And, you know, one of my emphases is that in the middle of the 20th century, liberals could agree with non-liberals like the communists from the Soviet Union, um, at the Nuremberg trials uh, on the premise that you you start by controlling aggression, um, not atrocity, 
um, for just a whole series of reasons. You know, if aggression happens, atrocity is likely to follow. Aggression allows a whole bunch of legal wrongs to take place, too, like the death of combatants in the millions, the permissible death of civilians in large numbers, you know, misspent funds, you know, the inadvertent destabilization. Um, And so there was this consensus that liberals actually accepted. Um, And I try to show in the book that as late as the, the early years of the Vietnam War, liberals begin debating with one another whether to have the Vietnam War um, at all, not whether it was being fought too brutally. And so I, I found my own time puzzling from that perspective because it seems as if liberals had changed their tune, had set their sights you know, lower, if you like, or, you know, in a different location, because there was much greater acceptance of passivity for sometimes, you know, rallying around war um, on condition that it be fought more humanely. And so, you know, I would argue, and I've argued in a lot of my work, actually, for a big break in liberalism uh, sometime, you know, in the roughly 1970s, um, because prior to that, it's not just in the 1940s, but the premier liberal agenda uh, in the later 19th century in the period, you know, after World War One and after World War Two is liberal peace. Uh, now, of course, it wasn't observed by liberals, especially in imperial affairs, but there can be no doubt that humanizing war was a pretty subsidiary goal for liberals up until our time when it became the, you know, hallmark of liberal um, goals in war. So I think, yeah, I think one of your, one of the sort of almost motifs I see in some of your work, and it, it comes through quite strongly in Humane, I think in Not Enough and in Last Utopia, and I think it comes through in the Carlyle lectures that we'll talk about in a moment. But you draw a kind of genealogy of political thinking and of human rights and humanitarian warfare, the different ways it's it's changed. But you you nonetheless maintain a strong sense about the role of contingency in creating different paths of human rights or social and economic rights and also the development of warfare industry. Why did you find this methodology about genealogy and about contingency particularly attractive about your studies in liberalism? It's it's a great question because I you know I've 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 in a sense revisited that commitment um, over the years and and maybe tried to weaken it a little bit. Um, in the beginning, I was just impressed by the philosophical you know work that had been done to establish genealogy as an incredibly powerful intellectual practice in you know you know, debatably in Friedrich Nietzsche, but certainly in Michel Foucault. Um, and, you know, I encourage anyone to look uh, at Foucault's lecture course, Society Must Be Defended, where he actually um, kind of makes a case for how genealogical practice kind of was discovered or invented, um, especially in the 18th century. And at a time when... Um, you know, a kind of liberal 
um, set of ideas that I thought, you know, not only betrayed um, other kind of political um, outlooks, but also in significant part, liberalism itself was so were so, so hegemonic in my youth. You know, genealogical destabilization, you know, from the margins seemed like an incredibly productive way of going about the, you know, the attempt to open up room for alternatives. Um, now, w- w- the reason it works, I think, so so well, at least for some readers, is that, you know, you 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 understand that the present doesn't have to be the way it is and that there were alternatives in the past. But, you know, in subsequent years, I've I've wondered whether uh, it, 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 it one has to always say that the results are just contingent in the sense of, you know, accidental or random because they surely aren't. And the rise of, you know, more determinist kinds of approaches uh, to history lately and to intellectual life, notably the resurgence of Marxism, I think puts a lot of pressure on um, the idea that we should just reveal how um, how contingent the present is. I mean, I think we should say it could have been otherwise, but I do think we have to spend more time looking into why it ended up the way it did. So, you know, in in the book, uh, the most recent book, um, I do try to show that there were choices made at a certain moment that I regard as mistakes that could have been taken a different, you know, could have, you know, been, you know, um, different in some, you know, relevant ways. I also think there are powerful forces like the transformation of America's national security strategy in the 1940s um, in a more imperial direction that, you know, determine a lot. And so we have to always be sensitive to the powerful forces within which choices are nonetheless made, um, you know, and 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 as historians give give, you know, due allowance to. Um, determination and freedom, including freedom to to make mistakes. And in the just sort of go on to the Carlyle lectures now, which I think I think they link a little bit with what you're with what you're writing about in Humane in some ways. Um, the lectures earlier this year, you had a a canon of Cold War liberal thinkers: Judith Shaklar, Isa Berlin, Karl Popper, Gertrude Himmelhoff. Hannah Arendt and Lionel Trilling, you had a, a lecture on each of those. Could you tell us why you chose this set of thinkers and how their political thought displayed some of these moral and legal tensions and problems in liberalism and potentially in humanitarian warfare as well? And how that created, you think, a, a, almost an alternative intellectual history? Absolutely. So. I mean, there, there are really kind of three things to say in response to your question. First is about this tradition of Cold War liberalism. And just to, you know, continue the discussion from earlier, you know, I claim that there were choices made in the 1940s and 50s to reinvent liberalism in a, in a new form that broke in a series of respects with earlier liberalism um, in its allegiance to the Enlightenment. 
and to its the place it made for um, an account of the highest life, what we call in political theory perfectionism, in its belief that history and progress provided a form of opportunity for the realization of freedom and equality. Um, and it, all of those things were jettisoned by Cold War liberals, those I, I cover. And I try to, sh- you know, take each figure to show one or another feature of this reinvention. Sometimes things were added. The last lecture on Lionel Trilling concerns how psychoanalysis was um, made a kind of touchstone for this bleak liberalism that the Cold War liberals made famous. Now, they made choices. I think they're, I try and in the lectures and I hope even more in the book that is coming out of them to show that the experiences of these liberals, especially before World War II, but also during World War II, helped push them in certain directions. And I think we have to, you know, empathetically understand how they ended up where they ended up. But the main point is genealogical, that liberalism didn't have to be this way. And these figures made a an ethical and political mistake in reinventing the tradition in the way they did. Now, um, you know, to come to your other questions, um, I chose them um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, I won't get into detail about like the very specific reasons. I mean, some of them had to be in there, I felt like Isaiah Berlin and Karl Popper. Uh, and then I I wanted to um, include Judith Glarb just because she begins her career as a kind of um, acerbic critic of Cold War liberalism before it has that name and then became a member of the tradition herself. And I, I just wanted to show how she had some very penetrating insights about it before she, um, in a sense, disregarded uh, those those insights uh, in the in in the balance of her uh, career. Someone like Hannah Arendt was not a liberal and therefore not a Cold War liberal. But I wanted to use her to show that even idiosyncratic theorists like her could, um, in in significant ways, be fellow travelers of the Cold War liberals, especially I argue in their views of decolonization and freedom and equality in what liberals used to think of as a kind of imperial globalization of liberalism. Um, and so I had, you know, specific reasons for each, and I wanted to use them to kind of add up to something that would be more than the sum of its parts. Um, now, the, the, the last question concerns, you know, a, a, a choice I made in, in, in how to study the, the remaking of liberalism through these figures. And, the the Oxford lectures were, you know, had the general title, the Cold War and the Canon of Liberalism. And the basic idea was to look at how these figures thought about their own conceptual past. You know, what movements and traditions did they honor as relevant for the making of their own Cold War liberalism and which uh, movements uh, did they expunge? Um, and so, for example, um, I, 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 I mentioned the Enlightenment. I try to show in the first lecture that Judith Schlar and her earliest work 
complained that Cold War liberals had jettisoned the Enlightenment, which is a very, in a sense, surprising thing for liberals to do. I also, you know, um, mentioned the case of psychoanalysis where Sigmund Freud is, is made a kind of, you know, master thinker of liberalism. There's also a lecture on Gertrude Himmelfarb and Lord Acton, the 19th century Catholic liberal. And there I try to show that um, many of the Cold War liberals, even when they were unbelievers themselves, treated um, Christianity as an essential bulwark of liberty against totalitarianism. And, you know, the canonization of Lord Acton, not just by Himmelfarb, but by figures like Friedrich Hayek, was, a, a, I think, a, an, an incredibly illuminating feature of 1940s and 50s intellectual life. And so these figures don't just change what liberalism is, but the canon that they thought had led to um, their own present and therefore to the form of liberalism, I think, in my view, a perverted and, and in a way catastrophic form that they championed. And what do you think precisely what was so catastrophic and potentially even destructive about it? Well, it, this is, you know, in an ethical and political judgment of my own that um, the the Cold War liberals stripped their tradition down and it was no longer an enlightenment project of emancipation uh, in history so that people could achieve the highest life, uh, not just locally, but globally. Rather, it was cast as a call to defend freedom from the state in the transatlantic West from the communist and, you know, post-colonial hordes uh, with, you know, civilization uh, beleaguered and barbarians at the gate. And, you know, I've seen that same stance repurposed so many times in the past 50 years, sometimes, you know, for a more aggressive stance towards the rest of the world and foreign policy, but mainly as a kind of defense of not doing much in domestic policy to institutionalize freedom and equality. And if, like me, you think, well, that's the goal of modernity, including liberal modernity, then its abandonment by these Cold War figures is nothing short of a, you know, disaster through which we're still living. Yeah, I think in your in your lectures, I was I noticed how you sort of thought of the Cold War as a way of framing uh, thought about the Enlightenment and about individual liberty in the state, emergency powers, rather than just sort of seeing it as a as a bipolar struggle between superpowers. And I think that what came across uh, to me quite well in it was that how individual liberty seemed always not not just threatened by communism and fascism, which is sort of self-explanatory, but by the demands of political and economic equality itself in some ways. And so right. in this way, socialism or socialists seeking to liberate the oppressed were not actually continuing the ideals of liberalism, but were actually therefore becoming almost internal enemies themselves. Right. From that point of right. view. So I, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I, th I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about why 
almost in, in defending liberty and in quote unquote equality, why they ended up still calling themselves liberals, how, the, how they could sort of play these two things at once. Well, it's 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 really a fantastic way of framing a question about these figures who who are very confusing. And it, 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 when you put it that way, you know, I I think it's only fair, you know, to go back to the kind of contextual forces, you know, which we have to empathetically understand that they had seen, you know, liberal progress overturned in European history by fascists. And yet they had beaten those fascists with help from the Soviet Union. It's only right to notice that they, the Cold War liberals then tended to turn a blind eye to the preservation of forms of fascism, for example, in the Iberian Peninsula or liberal support for right wing autocrats, which continues today. Um, and then, as you say, there was the communist threat. And I, I'm not suggesting we should understate it, but we should also not follow the Cold War liberals in um, taking it as an alibi for um, preferring freedom to equality at home so strictly. And as you say, what's most striking about the Cold War liberals in retrospect is that they're they're global fears were really, um, you know, led them to um, have have local projects uh, of sweeping into the alleged communist syndrome. Lots of people on the left, um, you know, democratic socialists, not least. And that has had immense consequences. Um, it, it did at the time and it it has since. Now, you, you, you're right that one of the big emphases of the lectures is how frightened these figures were of a slippery slope into tyranny. Now, they'd, they'd, they'd witnessed tyranny, and we have to keep that in the frame, but they maybe um, generalized from that harsh experience and then colluded in the death of political alternatives in their own lands and in the West and, and in some ways after 1989 around the globe. And so I think we have to, you know, identify and indict this overreaction that the, the experience of the interwar period and the fear of, of, you know, Soviet, of the Soviet Union incited uh, after World War II and figure out how can we transcend the legacy of that overreaction if we think that liberalism ought to return to having an enlightenment vocation and ought to have an account of the highest life that isn't just seen as a recipe for terror and ought to think of history as a forum of opportunity for the realization of freedom and equality as they once did in the 19th century. Do you think there was an element of them that was almost embarrassed that the Soviet Union did so much in the war, in World War Two to be fascism? And it wasn't purely the liberal powers that, that did this, i.e. the British Empire and the United States, yeah, most of all. Do you think there was an element of embarrassment? I, you know, 
I don't, it wasn't mainly the liberal powers, you know, especially if, if we look at, you know, the continental European war. I'm not sure that there was so much embarrassment because, of course, the Cold War liberals were right that, you know, the, the left sometimes miss the Soviet Union's own internal terror, um, and was very concerned that, um, progress could prove you know, a, a, a way of avoiding the truth about, um, even socialist regimes. But I do think that the enormous prestige on the ground of the communist idea after World War II, because the Soviet Union had played that leading role in putting Nazism down, I think that did, um, not so much a shame, but frightened liberals, because now it seemed like it might be true that progress ended not in their own project, but in the Soviet Union's project. And so I think there was a big choice to make. You could reclaim progress, uh, not least by, sh- you know, insisting how retrograde, you know, communism could be in certain instances, you know, for all the things that did contribute, think of, you know, socialist feminism. Um, but instead, the, the the Cold War liberals went a different way. They said progress itself, including the progress uh, that on which liberals themselves once insisted, is a lure, is a source of, you know, terror. And so that meant um that liberalism became just very different than it had been before. And of course it's progress, you know, was, was restarted in the era of the 1960s and projects like Lyndon Johnson's a great society. But as we know, it was also overthrown and reversed by neoliberalism who have a pretty big role in the lecture since they're the neoliberals are on the ground and share a lot with the cold war liberals in from the first. And so um, I think a lot was at stake, as you rightly say, and in how the the Cold War liberals responded to the Soviet Union. And and let's say I would say the anxiety that the, 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 the communists were in the vanguard of history, no longer the liberals themselves. And do you think just on that, just as you said that, I was thinking that with the Great Society, with, with LBJ's Great Society and his escalation of, of the Vietnam War, do you think that shows anything about their kind of liberalism at the, at the time? That there was, there was an attempt at making things equal and encouraging freedom, civil rights, etc. And yet, simultaneously, there was essentially what, what I think many would say was an, a somewhat imperialist war or a neo-imperialist war, you know? Right. Picking, picking a label. Do you think that that those years in the 60s almost highlighted the tensions of what you're talking about? I'm not sure I would put it that way for the following reason. I, I think I would see two phases to Cold War liberalism. And I just lectured about the first. But in the second, there is a period of the 1960s in which liberals get ambitious and optimistic. And you see that you know, not just locally, but globally um, in kind of the rise of certain forms of um, development, you know, theory and practice. 
And it's that I would say it's that 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 other form of Cold War liberalism is short lived and is shipwrecked by its really, you know, its own catastrophic mistakes. But they weren't the same mistakes as I, I think the early founders of Cold War liberalism make, who were often critical of imperial overstretch um, and not just, you know, enthusiasts uh, for a kind of global campaign against communism. They just wanted to safeguard freedom at home. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say we, we have to mount different cases against the two different groups of Cold War liberals. The reason I'm focused on the first is I think after the, the second group failed, it's the first group that really kind of ended up dominating liberal theory and practice for most of the last 50 years since the Vietnam War. And so it's for that reason that I decided to kind of isolate them and look carefully at them uh, and figures whom, you know, were canonized really in my youth, like Isaiah Berlin, as these great sages um, for for our collective future. And so I, but I, I absolutely don't mean to imply that we shouldn't, you know, look carefully at that later moment. And actually some younger scholars um, like, uh, you know, Daniel Bessner and Michael Brennis and Daniel Steinmetz Jenkins have have been kind of doing some some conferences and edited volumes that focus much more on that version of Cold War liberalism. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So in one of your lectures, you, you focus on Karl on Karl Popper um, and you look at his you unpack some of his argument in his 1945 book, The Open Society and Its Enemies which, among other things, kind of gave us a theory of democracy and the state in some ways. And it made a very clear attack on totalitarianism. But, you know, some of his most forthright arguments were against Marxists, sometimes on a kind of uh, almost a moral level, but also on almost a strategic level on how foolish they were to not stop uh, fascism. So could you tell us how his thinking influenced liberalism and maybe incited some liberals to foreclose history. Sure. So, you know, Karl Popper is a fascinating example because his his works, you know, almost exclusively on politics are are written in wartime in New Zealand, the poverty of historicism, and then you know, more famously, the Open Society and its enemies. And I just you know, was struck when reading what biographers like Malachi Hakoan have unearthed that, you know, what what concerned Popper at that time was not the Soviet Union, which he actually hesitated to indict for a long time. Um, but instead, the Austro-Marxists of Vienna of his youth. And and he developed this view that the reason why um the right had triumphed first in 1934 and then 1948 in Austrian history was that the socialists on the left had trusted in history uh, to save them and now not mounted the correct opposition. Now, I think most scholars of Austrian socialism agree that that's a very odd you know, claim to make since, you know, the Austrian socialists were never in power. Um, at, at the national level, and they 
you know, were some of the chief victims of the victory of the right in Austria. And it's very hard to make a case um, that the, they actually harbored the beliefs that Popper, you know, assigned them. Yeah, kind of amazingly, Popper wrote all this without reading almost anything in New Zealand, and least of all, the actual theoretical uh, texts of the Austrian socialists, um, who are a really interesting uh, group of people. So after World War II, his book, um, you know, which is an attack on history and progress, and especially the idea of inevitability in history, which exempts us from moral choice, um, you know, just it conquers, you know, Western intellectual life. And the the idea is that um, th- those people who, you know, believe in laws of history are actually, you know, malefactor, malefactors and terrorists, uh, you know, claiming the, you know, alibi of a bright future to, you know, kind of engage in the crime and violence now. Now, that might be true, but it, 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 it seems as if there were a couple of problems. As with the Austrian socialists before, it's not actually clear how many progressives harbored this belief that Popper indicted um, in so-called historicism, um, the idea that there's one one kind of script in history and it, it's going to be followed out no matter what. Um, and then second, it's, I think, essential that liberals before World War II had had their own versions of belief in historical progress and perfectibility. And as with so many of these other features of liberalism that I talk about in the lectures, the effect of Popper's work, although it's just narrowly about a particular kind of historicism, is to give the sense that, you know, the Soviets are the only people who need an account of the unfolding of freedom and equality in history, um, when actually that had been central to liberalism before the Cold War. And I think that that left a, a you know, a baleful legacy. Um, most liberalism since Popper has taken the form of kind of abstract ethical claims um, about individual entitlements. The classic case would be John Rawls's work. And I think liberals have lost any commitment to their own account of a bright future for humanity, which it's our you know, responsibility to enact in politics. And on this kind of point of of history, I I, just, I think it was actually in your first lecture on on Julius um, Shaklar, you mentioned how the Enlightenment could almost be usefully seen as a 20th century invention. Um, I was wondering if you could expand a bit more on her view and and their view in general of the Enlightenment and this idea of progress forestalled or progress mm-hmm. not happening in the way they wanted it to and 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 the such. Good. So I mentioned in the first lecture, you know, I was 
a bit surprised by this myself, that one of the great Enlightenment scholars of the era, not Schlar, but another another um, English professor um, and, uh, named Richard Cobbin had had claimed that, you know, before 1960, there hadn't been a general discourse of the Enlightenment in the English language. And if you use Ngram or any of these related kind of sources, you find that that's largely true. Um, now, in French and German, there's a much, you know, bigger discourse of the Enlightenment. Um, and one of the points of my lectures is that, you know, Anglophone intellectual life also for liberals was like substantially changed by um, the influx of French and German frameworks um, for for kind of political thought in this period. It's not unprecedented because, as I also argue, you know, GWF Hegel's thought had been central to English liberalism before World War II. But nonetheless, the kind of you know, politics as a debate over something called the Enlightenment, whether to have it, what its implications were, that really only occurs in in Anglophone debate after World War II. And Schlar's observation was that um, one of the imports that both Cold War liberals and neoliberals sponsored was to claim that liberalism should avoid um, the Enlightenment, which the Soviet Union had now arrogated as its own source uh, of epistemic and political authority. And this is one more example, really the master example of how liberals, instead of you know responding to the Soviets by owning the Enlightenment and you know claiming that the Soviets perverted it, actually just abandoned the Enlightenment to their enemies and, and, you know, allowed their enemies to cast the, the, you know, significance and of the Enlightenment in a certain way. And so I think Schlar's argument there is very powerful because it's one place, not the only one where you can see not an identity, but a, a strong family resemblance between what a lot of Cold War liberals do and what a, a number of neoliberals like Friedrich Hayek do, which is to condemn the Enlightenment in the name of liberalism in these crucial years of the 1940s and 50s. I think it's almost the spirit of what some of your your lectures were, is that this, this idea of political paranoia, perhaps, or fear, worry, concern, all these things seem to sort of unite them an awful lot about the world and about uh, liberalism itself and the, and the fate of it and I wondered if is this was was this or simply a geopolitical problem that there was these two rival superpowers and you know we don't want to lose what we what we've just gained or do you think it's something actually far more inherent in in liberalism itself that made them this I suppose is it is it more internal or is it an external force well, I, it's a it's a fantastic question. You know, I I one one person I cite, you know, with with some admiration, but also ultimately, you know, contest too is Amanda Anderson, who in her great book called Bleak Liberalism contends that kind of from its inception, whenever you think that was, liberalism has involved a kind of anxiety. Um at really at 
at the psychic core of, of its outlook. And, you know, I, I don't think that's totally false, but I think it, you know, it, it does obscure the, the massive rise of a kind of anxious or bleak or fearful liberalism in, in the middle of the 20th century. And again, I think we have to be empathetic, uh, and see that this was for many people a response to trauma um, in their own kind of political experience, above all the trauma of feeling if they'd been on the left themselves, as Gertrude Himmelfarb and Lionel Trilling and my, you know, cast of characters were um, betrayed by their own, you know, um, you know, political allegiances. And so they were very much kind of trying to reform in response to their own experience. And even when they hadn't been on the left, I think the, the, the 1930s and 1940s were genuinely scary. Um, however, I, I guess I wouldn't put it, um, by saying that just the threat of nuclear war, the Soviet Union with its plan for world domination objectively justified the outcome. And therefore, you know, once those, you know, threats were over, it would be kind of simple to, you know, pivot um, back to a more optimistic liberalism, because it seems as if the what you called the paranoia of Cold War liberalism led to a, a pretty deep you know, reconfiguration of the doctrine so that, um, lots of things were scary. And again, we're, we're, we're in a moment when we're told that it's liberalism's last stand, democracy's last stand, which really means liberalism's last stand. And that might be true, but if, if it is, there are a lot of times in my, you know, 50 years on this earth when liberals told me it was the last moment for the preservation of freedom to justify certain, a certain stance. And I, so I think this kind of psychic outlook has proved really kind of in, enduring and ingrained in ways that have been, you know, um, have been a setback for liberalism itself and not just, you know, some other, some other political viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, it sort of seems almost like they're very on the defensive always like it always needs to be saved and that there's a sort of savior element to it and i can on that sort of point on on him uh on your lecture on him on her work on uh lord acton the acton revivalists and about his liberalism and his christianity i thought there was there was something quite interesting there in the fact that she highlights how acton elevated eternal moral virtues and standards and she herself was a, a contributor to American neoconservatism, which itself saw itself, if you like, saving liberalism. You know, it saved liberalism from being amoral or immoral or aimless and that it was going to step in with robust military power, but also robust moral standards about what society ought to be, um, which I think means that neoconservatives often have a kind of interesting connection with neoliberal capitalism as well. I think they have a sort of, there's a sort of odd tension between them, which I think is quite interesting. But I'm curious about how Christianity influenced the Cold War liberalism. And perhaps 
modern liberalism's support for humanitarian warfare, which sometimes has sort of Christian undertones, I suppose you could call it. The idea of being a saviour, the idea of, you know, if we don't step in, you know, it's the apocalypse or, or that sort of thing. And I wondered if how that relates to liberalism, which some people sometimes regard as being secular and irreligious and not actually related to Christianity too much. So I wondered if you could outline the ways in which Christianity and to some extent Judaism have influenced Cold War liberalism or potentially even uh, modern liberalism and its relationship with moral certainty and standards. So, you know, the first thing to say in response to that great question is that Christianity is, you know, what Christians or those who you know, propose to invoke Christianity, even if they're Jews like Gertrude Himmelfarb, make it. Um, and so you can have so many different Christianities and, you know, the Cold War and since is not the first time that you haven't had only appeal to Christianity, but also selection of one kind rather than another. Um, there had been Christian liberals in the 19th century who saw an important connection between them. An example would be Benjamin Constant, the Swiss author. Um, but I think what's significant is that in the Cold War, you get um, people claiming that we need a kind of austere neo-Augustinian Christianity that puts sin, which is eternal, and moral norms, which are the eternal kind of bulwarks against sin at the center of liberalism. And Himmelfarb is so useful in my account because um, long before she's a neoconservative, she's a Cold War liberal and she explicitly kind of revives Lord Acton to replace the, the kind of intellectual foundations, which she understood to be Hegelian, in 19th century liberalism with this kind of ahistorical, non-progressive, moral outlook. Uh, now, of course, she evolved, and you're right that some of the most exciting, you know, intellectual history these days, like Melinda Cooper's concerns, the relation of these different teams of people, um, Cold War liberals and neoliberals, I try to show in this book, were not the same, but they also were not that far apart or could evolve, you know, into, you know, into, you know, each other as Himmelfarb, you know, exemplifies in her own life. And Cooper shows that, um, you know, neoconservatives and neoliberals, while not the same, could find common ground. Now, your, your kind of, your, your point about Christianity and humanitarian warfare is, you know, also really interesting. I try to show in that recent book that, you know, Christianity is absolutely central to the rise of, um, peace advocacy. But it's also really important that it's a form of Christianity that the Swiss, you know, um, you know, epitomize in their leadership of the, cause of trying to make war more humane that that really places the reduction of physical suffering at the ethical center um, of 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 a kind of Christian vision. And arguably that that particular form of Christianity, not the the kind of peacemaking form of Christianity um, or 
the prophetic form of Judaism, which, you know, anticipates peace in ways that Jesus Christ kind of found very important. Um, that, that, that form of Christianity obviously gets shunted to the side in the name of this allegedly secular ethic of reduction of suffering. And so that's a, that's a story about Christianity and it's, you know, reinvention and survival in a secular age that I think has to be told. And it's really important to, in a genealogical spirit to show that, well, we're, as Nietzsche originally said, we're living in the Christian aftermath, but, you know, maybe, you know, we should add to Nietzsche that actually one form of Christianity triumphed while another, you know, faltered and disappeared. Sam, that's fantastic. Thanks for thanks so much for joining me for this. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.